Today's episode is supported by the Must Triumph podcast from Sam Yang. Must Triumph is a philosophy podcast produced by a guy who was brought up and influenced by anime, pro wrestling, martial arts, Howard Zinn, Noam Chomsky, and Ralph Nader. And I could tell you the details of what you'd find interesting about an episode or two, but what's really interesting about this podcast is what you see when you look at it holistically. Each episode, even if it seems disconnected from the others, is actually part of a curriculum, and each lesson builds on past episodes. The whole series is really thoughtfully done, and will definitely get you thinking in interesting directions. You can find Must Triumph wherever you listen to podcasts, or directly at musttriumph.com. And now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the crisis of illegitimacy our institutions are facing, most starkly at the Supreme Court, and some ideas of what to do about it. Clips today come from The Bradcast, Amicus, Jacobin Radio, Start Making Sense, The Tom Hartman Program, and The Real News. It is now official. The Republicans have muscled another extreme far-right winger, one who is accused of multiple alleged sexual uh, assaults and who absolutely lied multiple times under oath to the U.S. Senate onto their already stolen U.S. Supreme Court. Judge Brett Kavanaugh is now Justice Brett Kavanaugh, and we'll have the opportunity to help lurch the court and freedoms that many of us have held dear for decades far, far to the right. <clears throat> yes, for decades. And yes, we are all very screwed. That said, there are uh, still there are still ways to level and or reverse the playing field as we move forward, including adding seats to the U.S. Supreme Court to take back a majority for the majority of Americans who have watched all of this in horror as their uh, key institutions now like now including the U.S. Supreme Court have been stolen from them. There is the uh, possibility of impeachment of Brett Kavanaugh for the same reason that there will always now be an asterisk next to his name in the history books, just as there is one by Justice Clarence Thomas's name, who was placed on the court despite credible allegations of sexual misconduct back in 1991, just as there is an asterisk next to the name of Republican-appointed Justice Neil Gorsuch, Next to his name, after Senate Republicans took the unprecedented step of refusing to even vote on a nominee by a Democratic president to fill a vacancy on the court for nearly a year under Barack Obama. Just as there is arguably an asterisk next to the other two Republican appointed justices on the court, Roberts and Alito, who sit on the bench only due to George W. Bush's almost certainly stolen election in the year 2000 and his likely stolen re-election in 2004. So it's a fait complete. All five Republican justices on the nine-person court running it now all are under a cloud of uncertainty or corruption or theft or historic disgrace. And yet, for the moment, that's where we are with many of us hoping to figure out how to carve out the difficult path of reversing the brutalities of this 
particularly corrupt political pendulum that has all that has slapped the 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 country if not the world in the face but yes it can be done no it will not be easy neither will it be quick nor painless but it must be done we have in my opinion no other choice for the republic and in order to do that uh it is up to us to we the people there are no saviors other than us other than you and i people within earshot of my voice we have to do this thing and yes we can do this thing but we the people will have to overcome the same rigged political and corporate media system which has brought us to this moment of history in the first place Wrapping up uh, one of the most partisan and rancorous confirmation hearings, uh, the best evidence of that, I think, is President Trump uh, at a White House swearing in ceremony, essentially saying this. What happened to the Kavanaugh family violates every notion of fairness, decency and due process. Our country, a man or a woman, must always be presumed innocent unless and until proven guilty. And with that, I must state that you, sir, under historic scrutiny, were proven innocent. Thank you. I guess my first question for you, Senator Merkley, is Brett Kavanaugh took his seat at the court on Tuesday, business as usual. We're all papered over and moving on. How do you think about what has happened and how quickly we've torqued to this is the new reality? Well, I've, I've got to tell you that I think the wounds are extremely deep. Uh, the bitterness is, is very high because there has been a lot of damage done to both the Senate and enormous damage done to the integrity of the Supreme Court. And what do you – I want to talk about the Senate in a minute, but when you talk about the integrity of the Supreme Court, one of the paradoxes, of course, is that the Supreme Court, all nine members are now going to collude in performing normalcy. They have to do that. Um, we talk so much on this show about how the justices – the one thing they have is the public respect and reverence for the institution. And so, you know, on Tuesday, we had Justice Kagan giggling with Judge Kavanaugh, Justice Sotomayor pinching Justice Gorsuch. Uh, they're going to just double down on the proposition that everything is fine at the court. So when you talk about the integrity of the court, what does that look like to you? Just a public sense that the thing is broken, regardless of what they're showing us? Well, the members of the court certainly will do what they can to make things look normal, but they're not normal at, at all. Uh, the, uh, the fact is that the court, which uh, was viewed with respect as I grew up, as a, a series of, of umpires weighing the the respective provisions of the Constitution against each other and against the evolving strategies of society, are now viewed 
as basically a super legislature. They're super legislating on issues involving the environment, uh, on workers, on women's reproductive rights, on the issue of uh, corporate power and corporate speech, a whole series of things that largely boil down to a vision among the five uh, Republican members of the court uh, as how to create government by and for the powerful in opposition to the constitutional vision of government by and for the people. Both the, the stolen Supreme Court seat, stolen from President Obama and delivered to President Trump and filled by Neil, uh, Neil Gorsuch, and this nominee who couldn't uh, meet the standards to serve on any form of, of, of court, let alone the, the Supreme Court. This is lasting, lasting damage. My question for you is, isn't this just a mirror image of what Republicans have said about the court when liberals control the court? In other words, they're just regulating, they're making up law from the bench, they answer to no one. Isn't this ultimately just disserving the idea of the rule of law and this neutral court that we all need to believe in in order to function in a constitutional democracy? In other words, the kind of politicization you're describing, doesn't it ultimately just undermine the idea of this independent third branch? Well, we simply have to call the, the facts as, as they are, not as we wish them to be. In my lifetime, I've watched the Supreme Courts in country after country become politicized, make extraordinary rulings uh, that uh, change the course of those those countries. And I would think, uh, well, it's it's great that we have a, a truly uh, set of in, impartial jurists struggling to get it right with in terms of implementing the Constitution, but we no longer have that. And so to pretend otherwise is to live in a fantasy world, a, a world of what what we once had and and uh, and certainly would hope for again, but do not have now. You've really given voice to the idea that the White House had way too strong a hand on the steering wheel this time around. And, you know, you make the point that uh, they were the ones who were claiming privilege about 100,000 pages of documents. And they also, uh, I think you've argued, had way too much control over the FBI investigation. Is that uh, also something new? Is that a, a big shift that the White House has generally stood back and let uh, the Senate do its work? Or is this just par for the course? The White House protects their nominee. Uh, it is not par for the, the course. And uh, in that case of the president exercising presidential privilege, uh, normally you think of that in the context of a president protecting internal conversations of that White House. In this case, however, it was about records from a previous president. It wasn't presidential privilege on behalf of President Bush. It was presidential privilege on behalf of President Trump. And Normally, if an, if a, and by the way, these terms are synonymous. They're using it synonymous with executive privilege. So normally, when a president exercises executive privilege, there's a log cap saying this document cannot be disclosed because it meets this test of executive privilege. There was no such log or index for the hundred thousand documents that were stamped presidential privilege, and for the Senate to allow the White House to block its efforts to review those documents is a complete institutional failure. And it's a, it's not that the Senate didn't request those documents. The chair of judiciary did ask for them. But the fact that, that he and, and the majority did not then defend the Senate's role in being able to review information, 
that is that is where the uh, majority really fell down. And it wasn't just this. In addition, uh, the White House lawyer, Don McGahn, he called over uh, Republican leaders when they requested information on the three years of uh, his service, Kavanaugh's service as staff secretary, something that had been requested by the Senate. And he said essentially to these uh, senators, uh, don't request those documents. So they, they came back and they said, okay, we're not requesting those three years. So three years of incredibly important information got blanked out. That's separate and distinct from the 100,000 documents that got marked presidential privilege. And it doesn't even end there, because then the same individual empowered by the White House to mark documents presidential privilege, then marked 140,000 pages of documents as committee confidential to prevent the public from being able to see them and to prevent committee members and senators from seeing and, well, they got to see them privately in a special room, but they couldn't discuss the contents with the public or with their staff or with experts. And and so there was massive compromise from one end to the other of the, uh, of, of the ability of the Senate to review his record. And the question everyone would say, okay, so what was the president hiding? What did they want to hide with with 100,000 documents stamped presidential privilege? We know that during that time, he worked on issues related to torture. We know he he received stolen documents from Senate Democrats after he had said he didn't. Then we then we did find emails that said he did, even without those 100,000 documents. Uh, we know that he worked on various nominations and weighed in on those nominations. What did he say? Uh, we would have learned a great deal about his partisanship and his judicial perspective from those documents. That's what the president was hiding, and this is unacceptable. And I filed suit to get those documents. Unfortunately, I waited until the committee forwarded it to the full Senate, because I'm not a member of the committee, immediately filed suit, but time ran out. Uh, I, I wish I had done it differently. I wish I had filed immediately upon the uh, use of presidential privilege instead of waiting until the issue came to the broader Senate. Uh, that's a lesson learned. If we ever see this in the future, the Senate has to stand up and protect their responsibility under the Constitution to review the record of nominees. Now for the Midterms Minute, a look at the candidates and races and battleground districts that you need to know about, shout about, and support to make the biggest impact possible in the election on November 6th. As of the release date of this episode, we are exactly 12 days out from Election Day. Time is running out to make a difference. No one wants to wake up on November 7th wishing they had done more. So do it for yourselves, do it for your family, do it for the most vulnerable among us. Get out there and canvas, get out the vote, email and text friends, donate, whatever you can do, do it. These elections will affect us and the world for decades to come. According to the latest early voting reports, Republicans are actually outpacing Democratic voters in key states, so do not take the blue wave hype for granted. Information for all of the battleground races and ways to get involved can be found at the Midterms Minute HQ at bestoftheleft.com slash midterms. Today we're wrapping up the toss-up battleground races for the House that we haven't covered yet. As a reminder, to take the House, Democrats must flip 24 Republican seats. Let's dive in. 
In Ohio's first district, Democratic attorney Aftab Puraval is challenging Republican incumbent Steve Chabot. Chabot lost the seat to a Democrat in 2008, but got it back in 2010 and has held it since. Trump won here by six points, but it was his narrowest margin of victory in Ohio's congressional districts. Chabot was one of those no-shows when constituents demanded a town hall on health care last year, and then he voted for Trump care. Health care is at the core of Perval's campaign, along with protecting Social Security, but he is currently behind in the polls. In Utah's 4th District, Democratic Salt Lake County Mayor Ben McAdams is challenging Republican incumbent Mia Love, the only Republican member of the Congressional Black Caucus. This district was only created in 2010, but was held by a Democrat until Love took the open seat in 2014. The latest polls have the candidates tied at 46% each, with 8% undecided. Love is following the GOP playbook by trying to align McAdams with the Clintons and Nancy Pelosi. McAdams has said he won't support Pelosi as Speaker and has expressed support for anti-corruption legislation to restrict the influence of lobbyists. And finally, Washington's 8th district is another open-seat race. Democratic pediatrician with a degree in astrophysics Kim Schreier is challenging Republican former state senator Dino Rossi. The last incumbent won re-election by 20 points, but the district has voted Democratic in the last three presidential elections by 2 to 5 points. Rossi calls himself a fiscal conservative with a social conscience, but his record doesn't back that up. Shire is calling for a Medicare buy-in on a sliding scale, pointing to the outrageous overheads of private insurance and the minuscule overheads of Medicare. Rossi has lost his campaign for governor and both campaigns for U.S. Senate. He got to the State House by appointment. As a reminder, voter purging is happening across the country, so we urge you to confirm your voter registration ASAP. Visit headcount.org and click Verify Your Registration Status under the Voting Info tab. There, you can quickly be directed to your state's specific website to confirm your voter registration. If there's a problem, call 866-OUR-VOTE to report the problem and get guidance. If your registration is okay, help someone else confirm theirs or obtain the necessary ID they need to ensure there are no surprises problems on Election Day. Links to all the information you heard today, as well as additional resources, are linked in the show notes. And today's Midterms Minute, along with all of our election information, can be found at bestofleft.com slash midterms. So if making the blue wave a reality in November is important to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about supporting Democrats in battleground races across the country via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too. We now have, because of this process, the Supreme Court that has been, many people are saying, delegitimized, um, that it's openly partisan, that, you know, it's always been that way. People who have looked back in history know that that's the case, but now it's bald and open for everyone to see. And it's very, very difficult, despite, you know, Kavanaugh's uh, Wall Street uh, journal op-ed where he said, I'm going to be nonpartisan and I, you know, was just angry, but literally I, I will be impartial. And no one, you know, actually believes that. But now you've also got, you know, uh, somehow because of the Mueller investigation, the FBI was sort of, which, you know, nobody want, likes the FBI, but then all of a sudden people were relying on it. And now after this investigation, it's also been thrown. Let's say it's suffered a, a big, you know, drop in its esteem by the 
the population. So we're in a situation now where most people don't have real representation. That's absolutely the case. But now we also have most of the institutions completely discredited. So I don't know if we should turn this into a discussion of strategy, but it seems like not a bad idea to talk about what to do now besides mobilizing and striking. The people who voted for Trump can certainly be one to the other side. I've always believed that. So I want to hear what you have to think. Right. So the crisis of legitimacy, this is a continuum. So the Supreme Court is experiencing a crisis of legitimacy because of the way that the Kavanaugh confirmation process has rolled out and the fact that he's the most unpopular person who's ever been floated to the Supreme Court, like maybe ever, I don't know, certainly in in living memory. Mm -hmm. Um, And the FBI, too, experiencing a small crisis of legitimacy, though it remains to be seen, because if the (laughs) Democrats continue to rely on the FBI to fight their battles for them instead of fighting themselves as one of the two major political parties in the United States, you know, obviously tasked with doing politics, then maybe they will resuscitate the the, uh, reputation of the FBI and maybe people will fall for it once again. But these are part of a continuum of a broader crisis of legitimacy. So I I wrote in my essay, The Banality of Brett Kavanaugh, that I think what's really happening is that there's a collapse of the fantasy of meritocracy. The idea that if somebody is up at the highest echelons of power in our society, that that is proof that they have some sort of superior hardwiring, they have some special insight uh, that actually, you know, guarantees them the right to be there, right? It's extremely tautological. We know they're up there because they had the, you know, something special that got them, got them climbing all the way up the ladder. And we know that people can climb all the way up the ladder because look at all these eminent people at the, at the top of the ladder and how eminent they are, right? right? So this has been collapsing for a long time because the, the flip side of it is that, you know, meritocracy is an ideology that reinforces capitalism. It basically says the people at the top deserve to be there because anybody can get to the top if they work hard enough. But the flip side is that you, if you're at the bottom, that means you didn't have what it takes or you didn't work hard enough to get to the top. And that worked for a while, but honestly, so many people are at the bottom now that I think people are growing a little resentful and they're growing a little disillusioned with the idea of meritocracy. People know they work hard. People know they deserve good things. Um, the social safety net is fraying. Uh, the jobs are, are not, the opportunities are not presenting themselves. And I think that people's, you know, belief in meritocracy is wearing thin. I think that Trump is actually a phenomenon that um, speaks to a sort of almost like a nihilistic response to that. I so, think like, that's true. People know that meritocracy is kind of a sham. And so some people are like, well, let's, you know, let's pick someone who's a complete outsider. I'm tired of all this Ivy League, you know, these, uh, these Ivy League blue bloods, like, you know, r- running the show and telling me that the reason I don't run the show and can't even, you know, get a decent foothold is because I... Uh, you know, am inferior or whatever, like, screw that, I'm going with the outsider. Of course, he's not an outsider, but people have a pretty low level of class consciousness, so they're not thinking about the fact that, you know, a billionaire can never really be an outsider. He's a political outsider. So that's the nihilistic response. But there's a there's another potential response, which is personified in Bernie Sanders, which is that people are rejecting this idea, this 
this meritocratic idea that obviously, you know, Hillary Clinton is at the top because she deserves to be at the top and it's her turn and she has the experience and you can tell that she has the experience because she's been at the top for a while and the reason she's been there is because she deserves to be there, which we know because she's there, <laughs> right? People are waving that away and they're interested in something else. They're interested in, you know, in a politics of, of economic redistribution and in a politics of giving ordinary people opportunities and spreading around prosperity in our society. So we're looking at two divergent paths here. If there is, in fact, a crisis of legitimacy in the dominant institutions, whether they, that, that's the Supreme Court or, or whether that's, you know, the Ivy League and the pipeline between the Ivy League and the, and, uh, the halls of political power, then there are two directions that we can go in. Um, one of them is class conscious and the other one is not. I think that's actually what it comes down to. Today's episode is sponsored by Madison Reed. Since 2013, hundreds of thousands of women have tried and loved Madison Reed for the way they have revolutionized at-home hair color. Amy Everett founded the company, naming it after her daughter, because the status quo of hair color options either left much to be desired or cost way too much. Madison Reed offers the quality of a salon, the convenience and affordability of at-home hair color, and an ammonia-free formula with ingredients you can feel good about. With beautiful, multi-dimensional hair color, you'll look like you just came from the salon, but you'll have saved a whole lot of time and money because Madison Reed color kits are delivered to your door on your schedule for under 25 bucks. To get started, find your perfect shade at madisonreed.com, and they have a special offer for you as a Best of Luck listener. Right now, you can get 10% off plus free shipping on your first color kit when you use the promo code LEFT. That's madisonreed.com, and use the promo code LEFT. When the new Congress convenes in January... The House Judiciary Committee will be chaired by Democrat Jerry Nadler. He says he wants to open an investigation into Brett Kavanaugh and what happened and what didn't happen at his confirmation hearings. What do you think they should focus on? You correctly say that Nadler's interested in this. I think if the word wants to do it is, is perhaps the inappropriate term, at least as you look at how Nadler talks about it. He feels he has a duty to do it. And that's very important because there will be pushback. There will be some Democrats who, you know, in the sort of classic model, want to put everything behind and supposedly look forward. But what Nadler has said is that the Senate failed to do its job. It didn't exercise the, the baseline responsibilities in a system of separated powers where you have checks and balances, you cannot give advice and consent without adequate information. And you cannot give advice and consent unless you have explored the most serious issues that have arisen. And so what Nadler and others are talking about is looking at a variety of issues that the Senate simply did not examine. Some of those will very possibly relate to the testimony of uh, Dr. Ford 
as regards Brett Kavanaugh, that is a that is a possibility because there was so much there that was unexamined. But there's also something else which could become central to this, and frankly, if they do go forward, should be central to it. And that is the documented evidence, you know, that's that's really overwhelming at this point, that Brett Kavanaugh repeatedly lied to the Senate Judiciary Committee, starting back during the George W. Bush presidency. It's almost, you're really talking about 15 years of lying under oath and of participating in schemes to undermine the authority and the functionality of the Senate as a body that examines nominations for judicial posts and ultimately confirms or rejects them. It is something that the Senate Judiciary Committee should have examined and, in fact, should still be examining, but Chuck Grassley has refused to do so. And so Jerry Nadler, I think, is, is really essentially saying he is willing to follow his oath as a member of Congress and as the chair of a key committee should he become the chair of judiciary after the election. You talked about the Democrats who say this is a bad idea. Their main argument is that impeachment, if the, if the House Judiciary Committee were to pass articles of impeachment against Supreme Court Justice Kavanaugh, would then go to the Senate for a trial, and the standard there is the same as impeaching the president, a two-thirds vote to convict the Democrats will not control two-thirds of the Senate, so they will not win a vote to impeach Brett Kavanaugh. And therefore, some argue, there's no point. What's the point if, of doing something you're going to lose? Do you think there's a point of bringing articles of impeachment against Brett Kavanaugh if they're going to lose a trial vote in the Senate? Ask Richard Nixon if articles of impeachment in the House matter. Great answer. Impeachment should not be a political calculation. Impeachment should be an act of duty under the Constitution of the United States. If you feel that someone has in their official capacity, whether that be in their current capacity or previous, taken actions that are at odds with the Constitution, at odds with the good of the Republic, you act, you investigate, and if that investigation leads to at least some sense of confirmation of the high crimes or misdemeanors, that very broad definition given by the founders, then you, you impeach. You, you vote for articles of impeachment. They come out of the Judiciary Committee generally and then are taken up by the whole of the House of Representatives. And, you know, if you sit there and you say, oh, well, we can't do this because you know, Chuck Grassley won't like it, or Lindsey Graham will throw a fit. That isn't really the way the founders intended for it to work. If the articles are sufficiently damning and are sufficiently well-documented, the trial in the Senate will become, you know, would become a big deal. And you, at that point, might see some folks step up and do the right thing. It's not guaranteed, of course. I know the hyper-partisanship of the moment, but I will remind you that lying under oath to the, to the Senate, to the Judiciary Committee, is something that federal judges have been impeached for. You know, the final analysis of this, I have long believed 
that the power of impeachment, which I wrote a book about, is is much greater than simply the process. It is not simply this, you know, well, House does this, Senate does that, and then you have these different votes. It's also just the, the literal act of faith in the Constitution, this sense that, you know, it's, it says we're supposed to act, we will act. If the other chamber fails to act, that is their failure. History will look on them in a, in a very bad way. But you don't not do it because of a political calculus. And I'm really not a big fan of the hyper-caution of Democrats as regards accountability issues. The fact of the matter is that there are times when it is a duty and a necessity to hold someone to account. And if it is true, as Russ Feingold, the former member of the Senate Judiciary Committee, says, that Brett Kavanaugh has never appeared before the committee without lying. If it is true, as Patrick Leahy, the senior member of the United States Senate, the senior member of the Judiciary Committee, says that there is clear and, and undebatable evidence that Brett Kavanaugh intentionally set out to mislead the committee. If what a group of former top aides on the committee say that it is clear that Brett Kavanaugh dealt in stolen materials uh, in order to undermine and manipulate the confirmation process for judges when he was working for George W. Bush and with Karl Rove, then those are impeachable offenses. And, and you shouldn't run away from it. You should focus on it because it might just possibly be a way to tell the American people that you take the system of checks and balances a little more seriously than does Mitch McConnell. I have repeatedly over and over and over and over again tried to educate people about Article 3, Section 2 of the Constitution. Uh, Larry Kramer, who was the former dean of the Stanford Law School, wrote a great book called The People Themselves about this topic and, uh, you know, about judicial supremacy and judicial review. The idea that the Supreme Court is the ultimate sayer of all things in the United States. The Supreme Court has final power over everything. That's what most people believe. In fact, it's frankly what most legislators believe. It's not what the Constitution says, not what the founders intended or believed. And certainly I refer you to the Federalist Papers on that in the 70s and 80s, as I recall. Um, number Federalist numbers, you know, in the 70s and 80s, uh, they, they were all from 1787 to 1789. And uh, particularly Hamilton's stuff. But what the Constitution says is that Congress can, con can control the Supreme Court. And it doesn't just mean the number of people on the court, because Congress has changed the number of people on the court a number of times since the Washington administration. And it doesn't just mean that Congress can say you're going to be in this building or that building, because Congress has done that too. But literally, Congress can regulate pretty much every aspect of the Supreme Court's functions. 
And it, here is the here's here's what it says. This is Article Three, Section Two of the U.S. Constitution. First of all, in Section One, it goes through all the areas where the Supreme Court has what's called primary authority, or uh, you know, uh, primary. Um, what's the word I'm looking for here, Shano? Um, power, judicial power. Yeah, here it is. Section two: The judicial power shall extend to all cases in law and equity. Original jurisdiction. Thank you, Shano. Um, uh, arising under this Constitution, the laws of the United States, treaties made, it'll affect ambassadors, admiralty law, maritime law, uh, controversies which the United States is a party, uh, controversies between two or more states, all this kind of. You know, these were all cases that the Supreme Court could just take the case and rule on it, and their rule is law, right? And then they get to the second part. In all, in all other cases, in other words, if it doesn't have to do with admiralty law or it doesn't have to do with a, with a, with a, uh, a, a whizzing war between Texas and Oklahoma, or if it doesn't have to do with, uh, you know, uh, something like that, you know, the, 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 an ambassador, the stuff that was listed before. In all other cases, which is 99% of what the Supreme Court does, before mentioned, in, in all the other cases before mentioned, the Supreme Court shall have appellate jurisdiction. In other words, they're the final appeals court. Buck has to stop somewhere, right? Shall have appellate jurisdiction, both as to law and to fact, with such exceptions and under such regulations as the Congress shall make. Not might make or may make, but shall make. So it was clearly the intention of the founders and the framers, the framers of the Constitution, that Congress would regulate the Supreme Court. Now, I have argued for years and years and years that Congress should get their damn act together and pass a law saying the Supreme Court may no longer refer to its own decisions, which were never legislatively backed up. Its own decisions in uh, Santa Clara County versus Southern Pacific Railroad, 1886, Buckley versus Vallejo, 1976, Citizens United, 2010, and McCutcheon, 2013. That in those cases where the Supreme Court handed personhood rights, power, off to non-persons, corporations, and, and in 76 in Buckley, and then uh, reaffirmed in Citizens United in 2010, and in those cases where the Supreme Court also said giving money to politicians, political action committees, influencing legislation, all that kind of stuff. We used to call that bribery. It used to be against the law. But ever since 1976, it's been a protected constitutional behavior, protected by the First Amendment. And I have been saying, I've been arguing for this. I've been calling for this. And like I said, I wrote a damn book about it saying Congress you have the legal right and ability. In fact, I had Phyllis Schlafly on this program at least a half a dozen times to tell you she agrees with me. Uh, she's passed on now. But my point is that this is not a left or right issue. And is that Congress should write a law saying, Supreme Court, you may not refer to these decisions anymore. And we are overturning them. End of discussion. And people say to me, oh, it'll never happen. Come on, give me a joke. You got to give me a break. You got to be joking. Congress isn't going to do that. 
There's a word for it, by the way. It's called court stripping. It means stripping the power of the court within the legislation itself. Well, let me read to you the text of a bill that uh, does not have a number assigned to it yet, so it's still in committee. Oh, H.R. 177, it does have a number assigned to it. Okay, H.R. 177, in the House of Representatives, this is uh, uh, presented by Congressman Steve King of Iowa, Republican. I used to be a regular guest on this program. I think I irritated him once too often, but, you know, what the heck. And uh, what he's trying to do, you know, the Supreme Court has ruled in favor of Obamacare four or five times. Various parts of Obamacare. Uh, but they've ruled in favor of it. So what he's trying to do is strip those. He's trying to court strip this. So here is the, uh, let me, it's a two-page bill. to A bill to bar Supreme Court decisions in certain patient protection and affordable care cases from citation. In other words, the court can no longer even cite itself in its rulings. We are overturning you, Supreme Court. This is Steve King's proposed law. Be it enacted by the Senate and House of Representatives of the United States of America and Congress assembled under Article 3, Section 2, which allows Congress to provide exemptions, exceptions, and regulations for Supreme Court consideration of cases and controversies. The following cases are barred from citation for the purpose of precedence in all future cases after enactment. The National Federation of Independent Business versus Sibelius, King versus Burwell, and Burwell versus Hobby Lobby. That's the, it's a two-page law. That's the law. You, Supreme Court, we, Congress, are going to assert our Article 3, Section 2 power and tell you, you, Supreme Court, you can't stop, you can no longer defend Obamacare. Now, obviously, you know, I disagree with Steve King on the, on the essence of it. You know, I, I would like to see uh, Obamacare improved dramatically. I'd love to see a public option. I'd like to see us move for, towards single payer, all that kind of stuff. Uh, but forget the politics of it for a moment. Here you have a Republican United States member of the, of the House of Representatives who's no idiot. I mean, he's kind of out there, but he's no idiot. Steve King has, has been around the block for a long time, and he's much beloved in his state of Iowa, saying, here's a piece of legislation that specifically prevents the Supreme Court from from supporting Obamacare in the future. We could just as easily pass legislation that says that the Supreme Court may no longer say that money in politics is not bribery, it's, it's First Amendment free speech. Sorry, Supreme Court, we're going to throw that doctrine out. And the corporations are people. Sorry, Supreme Court, we're going to throw that doctrine out. And you may not cite those cases any longer. Brilliant, huh? Could the appointment of Judge Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court have been prevented? Many progressives are now asking what could have been done differently and even whether Kavanaugh could be impeached on charges of perjury should Democrats win control over Congress in the upcoming midterm elections. 
One writer, though, argues that looking back at the Senate confirmation hearings is not good enough. Instead, we need to look at how President Obama actually paved the road that led to Kavanaugh's appointment. More specifically, Obama's unwillingness to investigate and prosecute Bush administration officials for the torture and warrantless surveillance that took place under the President Bush made it more likely that someone like Kavanaugh would eventually become confirmed to the Supreme Court. Here's what Obama said back in January 2009, shortly before he was inaugurated, in an interview with George Stephanopoulos on ABC's This Week. Will you appoint a special prosecutor, ideally Patrick Fitzgerald, to independently investigate the gravest crimes of the Bush administration, including torture and warrantless wiretapping? Um, we're still evaluating how we are going to approach the whole issue of uh, interrogations, detentions, uh, and so forth. Uh, and obviously we're going to be looking at past practices. Uh, and uh, I don't believe that anybody is above the law. Uh, on the other hand, uh, I also have a belief that we need to look forward as, low, as opposed to look, looking backwards. Joining me now is Owen Higgins, the author of the article, Obama's resistance to investigating the Bush administration allowed Brett Kavanaugh to skate onto the Supreme Court, which was published by The Intercept earlier this week. Owen is a historian whose work regularly appears in The Intercept. Thanks for joining us, Owen. Thanks for having me. So exactly how did the fact that no real investigation and no prosecution whatsoever took place under Obama for the torture and surveillance practices that were widespread under Bush, how did that make Kavanaugh's appointment to the Supreme Court possible? Well, uh, I, I think you have to look at Kavanaugh's confirmation as part of this uh, long story of the Bush administration, how they've been treated in the last decade. Now, as you mentioned, uh, Obama refused to prosecute or go after uh, the, the members of the Bush administration for their crimes having to do with uh, torture, DTNA policies, warrantless wiretapping. And because he refused to do that, because his administration refused to do that, it, ha it allowed these members of the administration, the Bush administration, to kind of slowly reintegrate themselves back into society and the government and uh, the, I guess you would kind of call it the discourse. Now, Kavanaugh, uh, who was already a judge and who had become a judge in 2006 in the Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, while he was with the Bush administration as associate counsel and later as staff secretary, was at least there's a lot there are a lot of indications that he was involved with uh, the D the DTA uh, policies the torture policies and warrantless wiretapping as evidenced by uh, some email titles that have been released by the National Archives the full emails and all the documents will be released at the end of October but the names of some of these um, emails indicate that uh, Kavanaugh was involved with creating these policies, uh, these policies that were in direct violation of both international and U.S. law. And if, if, uh, the, Bush if the Bush administration and members of the Bush administration had been prosecuted by Obama and his administration, I think we would have seen a situation where someone like Kavanaugh, who again was involved with all of these policies, would have been considered maybe politically too toxic to appoint to the Supreme Court. And and this is, of course, setting aside everything else about him uh, that that raises questions, including his 
his uh, drinking and his uh, the allegations of sexual assault. Right. Now, during the Kavanaugh hearings, uh, Kavanaugh denied any responsibility for the torture program. We have a short clip here for this. I was not involved. I was not read into that program, not involved in crafting that uh, program, nor crafting the legal justifications for that program. Uh, in addition to Senator Feinstein's report, the Justice Department did a lengthy Office of Professional Responsibility report about the legal memos that have been involved to justify some of those programs. Uh, my name's not in that report, Senator, because I was not read into that program and not involved. So clearly, Kavanaugh is denying any kind of responsibility uh, or involvement in at least the torture program, but um, I, he reacted similarly with regard to the surveillance. Oh, but what do we know? I mean, you mentioned that there, many documents haven't been released yet uh, that are, aren't going to come out until later. But uh, what, what can we say that we do know and to what extent might he have been lying here? Well, uh, I, you know, I think that what we can say that we do know is that as, as a member of the Bush administration, as an associate counsel under Alberto Gonzalez, in the early years of the Bush administration, as they were developing these torture and detainee policies and surveillance policies, the suggestion that Kavanaugh was not involved uh, with developing these policies is it just doesn't doesn't really pass the smell test. I mean, even if even if he wasn't say directly involved in writing the policy itself, he was definitely read into this stuff. Uh, you, you know, again, these email titles that we have from the National Archives show this. Uh, but the thing is, and, and I think that this is very important, is that it, it would be very easy uh, for us to have all of these answers if there had been any kind of investigation, any kind of prosecution from the Obama administration. However, there was not. And, and the reason that it would have been easy is because those documents would have been released in discovery. Uh, they would have been allowed to be released in Freedom of Information Act. However, because there was no investigation, that's allowed, uh, you know, or I think it's around 400,000 documents to be withheld for two reasons. Now, 100,000 of them are being withheld by the Trump administration. They're citing executive privilege. And then 300,000 of them are being, as I referred to before, looked through uh, by the National Archives in uh, advance of their release at the end of this month. Now, of course, that's too late. He's already been confirmed. But the point is that had Obama looked into this stuff, had, 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 the, uh, had the Democratic majority both you know, in, in, in Congress and in the executive branch looked into this, you know, this, this stuff would have been clear already. And the fact that we still don't know, uh, you know, almost 20 years on, how these policies were developed, what went into them, uh, and even in, in some cases what these policies were and are, I think really speaks to a, a, a disappointing failure or lost opportunity on, on the part of the Obama administration to actually hold the Bush administration accountable. And, you know, in many ways, as I, as I say in the piece, I, I would really argue that it, that may end up to be one of the more one of the defining moments of the 21st century. I'm wondering, though, to what extent uh, this is really uh, perhaps just a, a failure, somehow a um, you know somehow a, something that they missed to do some for some reason. But what what might be behind that? That is, um, 
to what extent could uh, could it be that the uh, Obama administration might be thinking ahead, actually, in the sense of uh, that, well, if we leave office, what if our successor tries to get us on something? And therefore, yeah. we better not go after our predecessors because uh, we're just going to set a precedent for, for the next president. <laughs> um, so, in other words, this inaccountability, unaccountability and impunity is uh, self-perpetuating to some extent. And uh, the more they can they engage in misdeeds, uh, the more likely they will be also to actually forgive their predecessors. What do you think about that? I mean, I think that that is, is, is probably at least part of it. Um, it, it. It really kind of begs the question on whether or not this is, you know, this behavior by Obama and his administration, which is definitely not unique to them at all. I mean, I, I would hate to give the impression that, you know, before this, uh, there was any kind of accountability from administration to administration. There hasn't been. Uh, it, it makes you wonder how much this stuff is just baked into the American system, baked into the presidency, that when you come into office, you know, or even before you do that, you know, as that clip, as that clip shows, that was before Obama had had been sworn in, that you just kind of, you know, let this stuff kind of go. You know, uh, we can even look at this with um, with Trump, who is you know now the president and promised on multiple occasions, uh, you know, on the campaign trail that his administration would look into the Obama years and look into Hillary Clinton's time as Secretary of State to do some kind of kind of in in this case undefined investigation. Um, and I think that we can all say that that uh, Trump himself personally would probably love nothing more than to, than to do that, but he hasn't. And it, it, I, I don't I don't think that we can honestly say that there's maybe like a a a, a, a through line from like A to B between like like any kind of thought whether or not it's uh, Trump or Obama or Bush or whoever where they actually really think this kind of stuff through in, 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 in a way that refers to their, uh, their own successor and their own, their own place in, in, in not getting in trouble. I think that it's more, this is just the way that things are done. Uh, political power in the U S is just, uh, just not accountable. And that's just the way it is. Yeah, that actually brings me to my next point, uh, because uh, before the, um, no, sorry, after the 2009 uh, Stephanopoulos interview, uh, Obama also expressed a desire not to look back, but to look forward in during the 2009 Summit of the Americas in Trinidad and Tobago. That is, uh, President Obama was forced to listen to a whole slew of left of center presidents who recited the history of U.S. imperial ambitions towards Latin America and interventions. And Obama's speech to those speeches from the president was, quote, I didn't come here to debate the past. I came here to deal with the future. As a historian, what role do you see this type of approach of ignoring history and of not taking responsibility for past actions? What role do you see it playing uh, with in the way the U.S. governs? Well, I think it's very American uh, to do that. Uh, you know, the U.S. Has, has always approached the rest of the world and, and treated the rest of the world as if, actual material reality and past actions were completely irrelevant to the vision of the world that the U.S. wanted to encounter. Um, you know, you can see this through um, Obama's, o Obama's time in office when, you know, the interventions in the Middle East 
the drone wars, the, the, the continuation of, of warrantless wiretapping, even, even in the face of, of denying that that was happening. There's, there's an interesting part. I think every country has its own propagandist ideology and, and every country approaches the rest of the world and their past in a way that they would like to, to have it be rather than the way that it actually is. The difference with the U.S. is that we are the most powerful country in the world. And so our, the way that we approach the rest of the world and, and the way that we encounter them has a real effect on, on how the rest of the world operates. And if the U.S. is always thinking that, you know, we're going to look ahead, not backward, we're not going to learn from our past, we're not going to really consider history when we, when we deal with the rest of the world, I think that that has two effects. Uh, you know, one, it has the effect of basically what we've seen in the years since the Cold War, with, with the U.S. just kind of treating the rest of the world as if, uh, like that Fukuyama quote, um, where he says, you know, that, that, that that's the end of history. Um, I, I'm kind of mangling the quote a little bit, but that's the general, the gist of it. Uh, and, and that the, you know, history is over and, and we're just kind of recreating the world as we like to see it. And then the other one is that, um, that we just kind of, disregard alliances and dis- disregard promises and and treat the rest of the world in a way that's very unilateral and i think that 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 our, our refusal to consider our history has a lot to do with that We've just heard clips today, starting with the broadcast, trying to find a path forward to fix our rigged system. Amicus spoke with Senator Jeff Merkley about the illegitimacy of the Supreme Court and the damage done to the Senate by Kavanaugh's confirmation process. Jacobin Radio discussed what they referred to as Kavanaugh's banal reactionary mind. Start Making Sense talked with John Nichols on the duty to investigate and, if warranted, impeach Justice Kavanaugh. Tom Hartman explained a method by which the Congress could pass legislation to regulate the Supreme Court and take away some of their seemingly unlimited power. And finally, we just heard the real news lay out a case for how the Obama administration and the general pattern of the American government being allowed to act with impunity without fear of consequences laid the groundwork for an appointment like Kavanaugh. Members will be getting a bonus episode with additional clips on the future of the Supreme Court and the political battle that will continue to rage around it. I have three bonus clips today with talk about what to expect from the court going forward and more discussion of ideas to radically reform the institution. To hear all of that, to cast a weekly vote on what upcoming topics you want to hear on the show, and for other details about being a patron, visit patreon.com slash bestofleft. You can find that link in the show notes on the device you're using to listen, which is also where you can find links to each of today's segments for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. Hi, Jay. It's Annie from Alabama. Been a while since I called in. I'm calling in as a reply to Matthew on the abortion as a litmus test issue. Since I'm assuming that Matthew is a cisgender man, he doesn't really get a vote, in my opinion. hate to be like that, but, you know, it's kind of irritating when the discussion is being driven almost exclusively by men. But basically, I wanted to say that 
If you personally find abortion distasteful and you would not make that decision yourself in your life, then that's fine. That doesn't make you anti-abortion. That means you're pro-choice. You just made a choice. The thing that makes people anti-choice is when they choose something and then impose that decision on everyone else. That's the problem, that people aren't being allowed to make choices that are good for them. A truly pro-choice position is also pro-helping people raise families, pro-people getting adoption, and also it takes a very hard look at the policies we have in this country about forced sterilization. You know, people of color are being actively disenfranchised when they want to have their own kids. It's a more complicated issue than that. But yes, I do consider abortion a litmus test because all of our grievances are interconnected. If you cannot support people with uteruses making decisions about their own bodies, then I cannot trust you to make any other decisions because body autonomy is the most fundamental right that there is, that I own everything within my own skin and that you cannot make me do anything with my body that I don't want to do. If you can't support that, then I don't trust you to make any other decisions. And if you will disenfranchise women, you might disenfranchise people of color. You might disenfranchise the queer community. You might disenfranchise poor people. You might disenfranchise immigrants and refugees. I can't trust you if you're anti-abortion. And no one on the left should support a candidate that is anti-abortion. It just shouldn't happen. We need to ask more of our candidates. And of course, obviously, if your choice, if your choices are between an anti-abortion Democrat and a Republican, obviously vote the Democrat. But we need to hold our people to a higher standard. It should absolutely be used as a litmus test. Hi, Jay. You can call me Elizabeth today. I'm in Virginia. First of all, thank you so much for acknowledging the lack of... I know you were dancing around this quite a bit. Let's just say there were no ladies speaking up about the very feminine issue of abortion. So to answer your question, the quick answer is yes, it should be a litmus test for Democratic Party. And I don't say that necessarily as a um, as an emotional response. Certainly, there is a lot of emotion tied to it. But where it's coming from is a place of well done. So if we're talking about the Democratic Party as being the party of the people and the party that is of for individual freedoms, not the individual liberty that likes to get colored by the right, if we're talking about all people, we can't then say, well, except for women and their bodies. That just doesn't jive with the very fibers that make a Democrat a Democrat. Certainly, there are a lot of different variations in how a Democrat expresses their views, and certainly not all Democrats believe exactly the same thing. But I think it's fair to say that the common thread between all Democrats that makes them call themselves Democrats are social justice and the desire for equality. And that just cannot 
be accomplished in a world where women are not allowed to make decisions with their doctor. Now, I know that the conversation often revolves around, you know, women who can't have a baby for one reason or another. Um, and I just want to kind of throw in something here from, you know, a woman who's married and has kids. If I became pregnant right now, that would be fantastic. And my husband would be over the moon and it would be wonderful. Where my personal connection comes in in this particular phase of my life is that if there should be some kind of a complication where the baby that I totally want to have for some reason would not be viable or would not be healthy or for whatever reason am faced with the decision of whether to have this procedure or that procedure to end an inevitably going to end pregnancy. That's not the business of a legislator. And Jay, it's not your business either. Like, we, how are we even talking about this? Just like if I were to have breast cancer, whether I choose to have a complete mastectomy or, you know, any number of other procedures, why the hell are you talking about it? That just doesn't jive. That's not what a free society does. And I think that where the fundamental disconnect between those who call themselves pro-life and those who call themselves pro-choice is that we're operating with a completely different set of facts. And the reason why I've said you can call me Elizabeth today is because I'm about to admit something pretty embarrassing. In my teenage years, I was a hardcore Christian and also a hardcore pro-lifer. Like, yes, I was the jerk with a sign outside of an abortion clinic. Don't throw things at me, please. I felt at that time, obviously I was a teenager, I felt that I was standing up for somebody who couldn't stand up for themselves because I genuinely believed that as soon as conception occurred, that was a human and somebody needed to advocate for them. Fast forward almost 20 years, and I've had a career in the medical field for some time, I have seen the gray area of what is life and what is not life. I have seen and experienced firsthand what it requires to call something life. As a, um, I was a paramedic for many years, and I have called time of death, and I understand that the legal definition of life and not life is me looking at my watch and saying the word time of death or 23 or whatever the time is. So legally, before I look at my watch and say that, that person is alive. Legally, after I look at my watch and say that, that person is not alive. So that being said, I have learned that there is a, a broad spectrum between what's alive and what's not alive. Also, I have learned what is required to create, to to exist in what we consider as human beings to be alive. And a collection of cells is not necessarily that. So in terms of legalness, the definition of what is life and what is not life needs to be scientifically based. And if we're also going to say that we're the party of science and we believe in climate change and all that, we also need to say that we believe that a collection of cells is not capable of functioning as an independent human being and therefore should not be afforded the same legal protection as an independent human being. So that's my two cents. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Love the show. And I really appreciate you acknowledging the makeup of the experiences of the people at the table of the conversation. Thanks.
Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. So I have a few comments in response to uh, the messages we just heard, but I also have more messages to share that that came in in other ways. Uh, So first of all, quick response to Annie from Alabama. Alabama. I just want to point out that her excellent comments on uh, pro-choice being more than just abortion, it should include concepts like policies that are pro-family, pro-adoption, anti-forced sterilization, and so on. There's actually an, an enormous uh, slew of policies that fit in that category, and there's a name for it. It's called reproductive justice. And that term is starting to be used more and more now. And it's not exactly a replacement for pro-choice because pro-choice fits under the umbrella of reproductive justice. But if you use the term reproductive justice, it means you're including more than just abortion, such as all of those policies that Annie was laying out. So excellent point. It needs to be brought up more often. Secondly, I really appreciated that she pointed out that there is a difference between being anti-abortion personally and being anti-choice politically. I, I feel like we might even need some sort of intermediary term for someone who just would never choose to have an abortion but isn't really strongly pushing for policies that would restrict other people's choice. I, I mean, it should just be, as Annie pointed out, it should just be that person should think of themselves as pro-choice politically, but obviously the waters get a little muddied, terminology sort of gets used in different ways by different people, and then we end up with maybe a little bit of confusion. And then finally, I had a question for Annie after I heard her message because she did point out, look, like if you have an anti-choice Democrat versus a Republican, you should still vote for the Democrat because it comes with a lot of other benefits aside from this, but it should still be a litmus test. And so I asked, you know, I sort of heard that and realized Maybe we haven't done a good job, and not just me, but in general, maybe we haven't done a good job of defining what is a litmus test. Is it a zero-tolerance policy, or is it sort of, as uh, Annie was pointing out, like, look, like we should really strongly push for pro-choice candidates and, and general members of the party, but look, yeah, like, lesser of two evils still still makes sense come election time. So I I had that question. I emailed Annie. Luckily, we've been in touch before. So I emailed her that question. And this is what she said in response. Sorry if I was unclear. Let me try to clarify. In a primary situation, I will support a pro-choice Democrat over any anti-choice Democrat. I will hold my nose and tequila vote for an anti-choice Democrat over a Republican, but I will not be happy about it. I wouldn't be able to bring myself to donate or volunteer for that candidate either. In the end, I guess I'm a pragmatist. I'd rather our country be led by some weak centrists rather than actual fucking Nazis, and I hate that these are my options, end quote. Well said. Okay, uh, moving on to Elizabeth, whose message we heard second. I just want to clarify because Elizabeth started sort of getting into the debate over abortion itself. I just want to clarify, I am not having a debate about abortion in any way. This is a conversation about how to organize a political party. We are totally on board. Obviously, not everyone listening is on board, but I 
am completely on board with uh, with pro-choice and all reproductive uh, uh, justice issues. So just to clarify, like no one's having the debate, at least on this side of the microphone, no one's having a debate over the legitimacy of abortion or anything that goes along with it. And then second thing to Elizabeth, just be clear, is she said I was sort of dancing around and like, I kind of, I don't know, maybe I was joking or something, but I wasn't just sort of dancing around the idea uh, of ladies not calling in. I was actually being more inclusive than that, referring to people who are capable of becoming pregnant. Case in point, I got a voicemail, uh, and unfortunately the audio was too bad to share. <laughs> I think this person was going for a run heard the show, had to call in immediately, stopped on the side of the road, and had this to say, more or less. And unfortunately, I didn't catch this person's name or their pronouns. They described themselves as not a woman, but someone who has that equipment. And they went on to say that being opposed to abortion has a lot to do with not seeing people who have the equipment to become pregnant as full human beings. And so it is hoped that anyone interested in the Democratic Party would be made aware of this fact very quickly. So I just want to make sure that uh, point got in. I'm not quoting that person verbatim, but that was the uh, the driving point of that voicemail. Uh, I, again, I just the audio was uh, too poor to share. And lastly, I have one more comment I want to share from Margaret, who decided to write in an email rather than sending a voicemail. So Margaret has this to say in just a portion of her email, but I'm going to read a good-sized chunk of it. She says, Regarding the litmus issue, I strongly feel that being pro-choice should not be required to be part of the Democratic Party. There are so many important issues, global warming, gun control, dark money, health care, prison reform, poverty, labor rights, etc. If someone feels that the Democratic Party is the best fit for their values, even if they are uncomfortable or unsupportive of legal abortion, they should be welcomed. Let them come in the tent where we can talk about these issues. Someone who opposes legal abortion now may not necessarily hold that position forever, especially if they can be in a place where they can get to know the other side and hopefully see things from a different perspective. Uh, pausing that email, obviously that made me think of Elizabeth's voicemail that we just heard, uh, and as pro-litmus test as Elizabeth was, she actually is that person who transitioned her, her way of thinking. Just an interesting comparison between these two people who, who uh, sent messages in the show. Uh, continuing, and in this part of the email, uh, she's referring to the episode of The Daily that I talked about, sort of the battle for Missouri, which talks all about uh, abortion as a litmus test. So uh, she says, I can understand the reaction of the women in Missouri who opposed the pro-life welcoming statement, but I think ultimately it is short-sighted. If we're going to be able to move forward with the issues we care about, including protecting reproductive rights, we need to move beyond the current polarization which has served the right so well. This is really a very live issue. Just this week, I heard a piece on NPR about a group called Common Good. They are encouraging conservative Christians not to be single-issue voters fixated on abortion, but to focus on broader issues of human welfare, which often means voting Democratic. I certainly also want to encourage this." End quote. Okay, so th those are all the messages uh, that I've received so far, and here's my follow-up question that I, I planned to use just to sort of push the conversation along and help us stretch our mental muscles a little bit. So here's a little mental exercise. Imagine that instead of the two-party system we have now, which most people hate, um, imagine we had a parliamentary system where instead of two parties, there were like half a dozen parties, something like that. And in that situation, there would 
undoubtedly be a clearly pro-choice party, um, but it's unlikely they would win like more than 50% of the vote and they'd probably have to form a coalition government without getting into a whole lesson on how parliamentary systems work. Multiple parties have to join forces to actually form a majority government. So, uh, you know, a a pro-choice party would probably have to form a coalition government with another party that isn't necessarily pro-choice in order to govern. So for those of you who strongly feel that it should be a litmus test for the Democrats, would you go so far as to say in a parliamentary system that you would set a litmus test for a separate party in order to form a coalition government? So like in U.S. terms, let's say the progressive pro-choice party and the moderate Democrat party were completely separate, but they often joined forces to form a coalition government that pushes sort of left to center-left policies. If these parties join forces, then they get to govern and push their policies, but if they stay separate, they lose control entirely. So in this mental exercise where you want to enforce a litmus test, do you not only enforce a litmus test within your pro-choice party, but also say we would refuse to work with another party that isn't also pro-choice itself. I would love to hear anyone's thoughts on this, not just my question, but in response to any of the messages we just heard. Uh, As always, keep the comments coming in, 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Bestoftheleft.com